0: there, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we want to receive it. We pray that you would speak to our hearts now and uh, draw us closer to you through it and be glorified in our midst. And we should ask these things in your name. Amen. So it's a weird spot, frankly, uh, to jump in at 1 Corinthians 14, because 14 really is continuing Paul's thought from chapters 12 and 13. And in a sense, Broadly speaking, they're continuing his thoughts from chapters 1 to 11. So 1 Corinthians is written to the church at Corinth. It's the church that Paul started on, I believe, his first missionary journey. Um, It was a church on a very rich seaport, so it had a lot of money, it had a lot of pagan influence, it had a lot of just worldly culture that they were wrestling with, and then Paul later on, as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus, he gets a, a report back basically on how the church is doing, and the church is not doing well. And so Paul's going to write, uh, this is, he writes this letter as a corrective letter. Hey, this is not right. This is not healthy. This needs to be addressed. And so we've dealt, you know, chapter 5, there's sexual immorality in the church. There's, uh, frankly, just a lot of selfishness in the church that Paul's addressing. But one of the things that he's addressing is the spiritual gifts. And so chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is addressing the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit in a healthy church context, all right? And we talk, so we kind of have to just, you know, go back. Chapter 12, Paul gives a rough outline of basically what the gifts are, um, and it's not an exhaustive list by any means. There's other, other references in Romans and Ephesians to different gifts of the Spirit, but, you know, he talks about there's a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, a gift of faith, There's gifts of healing, there's gifts of the working of miracles, the gifts of prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. And we talked about last week that all these things are gifts of the Spirit, right? They're demonstrations of the power of the Spirit of God. And so with that, what's their purpose? Well, the the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, right? It's never to glorify the individual. Um, But it is, so it's to basically build up our personal faith, Right? Wow, this is the spirit of God that Jesus promised. God is fulfilling his word. He's, he's giving me life. He's giving me power to live out this Christianity. Um, it's also meant for edifying the church collectively. And so Paul is going to address, he's going to say, look, there are going to be different gifts within the church, and that's a good thing. And a church should not say, well, we choose to emphasize this gift over this gift. We choose to say that, well, you know, the mark of a truly spiritual person is they'll have this gift or you know, the mark of salvation is when you, you know, speak in tongues. Paul's saying, no, we're, we're a body. We're made up of different parts, but we represent one collective whole. And so we should expect in a healthy church to see different gifts of the Spirit. But, and then he goes on in chapter 13 and makes the point that, look, you guys have the gifts of the Spirit and it's flowing in your church, but you're missing something and that's the love of God. And the gifts of the Spirit, if their emphasis is glorifying Christ, then the primary thing that you should see if a healthy, mature Christian is exercising the gifts of the Spirit properly is love, right? We said last week, the gifts are not a mark of maturity, but they need to be handled maturely. And so as you grow and and you walk in the gifts that the Holy Spirit is gonna give you, the the primary focus of your walk with the Lord needs to be growing in the love of God. It's not, well, hey, I've got the gifts so I can do whatever I want, It's, hey, I've got the gifts. I want to love Christ more through these gifts. And so chapter 14, Paul's going to basically carry the thought on. And what we're going to get in 14 is really a lot of just sort of 12 was what the gifts are. 14 is going to be a little more, here's how you use them. And specifically, he's going to look at the gifts of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. All right? So one of the things we want to see as we're getting into 14 is just as we're reading through it, and we'll take it in a couple big chunks, but watch for the word edification. That's really the whole point of chapter 14. The word edification, uh, I think it's in the New Testament like 18 times. Basically half of those are in this chapter, all right? So the whole purpose of using the gifts of the Spirit is for edification, It's for building up. And it's not for building ourselves up. It's for building up the body of Christ. It should build up our relationship with the Lord, absolutely. But the gifts of the Spirit are never meant for, oh, it's my time to shine. It's my time to look awesome. This is my moment, right? You don't have a moment in, in Christianity. God has a moment, and you get to be a part of what he's doing. So chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So he's you know, picking up right after 13, but especially that you may prophesy for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So this is just a fun time at which we can offend any background in church history. But basically, Paul's going to say, all right, primarily I want to talk about two gifts. So these evidently were gifts that were pretty evident and, and manifesting commonly in the church at Corinth, all right? He says, look, desire the gifts. We talked about this last week. I want the gifts of the Spirit in my life, right? They're not scary because they're gonna glorify Jesus Christ. There's nothing scary about Jesus Christ being glorified. So desire the gifts, but especially desire the gift of prophecy. We said last week, prophecy is sometimes, hey, here's what's going to happen. The Lord says this is coming. But even in scripture, the vast majority of the the prophets, the vast majority of their writing is, here's the will of God for your life. Right, walk in obedience, repent, go here. Right, it's here's what God wants you to do, and so prophecy we should expect to be a very common gift in the church. It shouldn't, and it doesn't have to be this big dramatic moment. Right, it can be a conversation when you say, "Hey, you know what? You're talking to somebody. I was reading this week about whatever Barack and Deborah, and you know, Barack kind of missed an opportunity." because he wasn't willing to trust the Lord. And I just feel like maybe the Lord wants to encourage you to, you know, hey, go for it. If if the Holy Spirit's speaking that through you, bringing that passage to your mind while you're talking to somebody else, that's the gift of prophecy. And especially if that person says, wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Now, sometimes you might say, hey, I've got this verse that you really need to hear. And they say, um, I think you got the wrong person. At which point, okay, you know, you keep moving. Um, but But prophecy is not just foretelling here's what's coming it's forthtelling. here's the will of god and so if you're in the word of god routinely if you're surrendered to the holy spirit of god then prophecy will likely be a gift that comes into play in your life and i'm not saying i'm not saying it universally okay just because we're all part of a body right and paul says there's different gifts and different callings but he says desire that you may prophesy And we should expect prophecy to be a common gift in the church. When we split up in this church on Sunday mornings between worship and teaching, and we are going to find somebody you can pray for, you're going to find somebody who might need to be encouraged with the word of God. And that is a point in time at which we should hope that the gift of prophecy is going to manifest in your heart. And you're going to be able to say, hey, you know what? I think the Lord just wants to encourage you in this way. Or, hey, you know what? I think that's really a dumb idea, right? I, I think, you know, if you look in Scripture, this is what the lord says to do and you're not doing that so maybe i could you know can we pray about this can we think about this that's a great gift of prophecy and so prophecy is an important part of a healthy church now what paul's not saying is that tongues doesn't matter right but he's saying okay he who prophesies is speaking edification and exhortation and comfort to men when you exercise the gift of prophecy you're going to build someone up you're going to build up the church he says, when you, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. He's not saying that it's bad to speak in a tongue. But here's the thing. Uh, verse, let me find it. Verse two, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Okay, the gift of tongues is, is when you are praising the Lord and basically you run out of the English words that you know. And, and, and there's still more to be said. And the Holy Spirit basically just bypasses your understanding and you're able to praise the Lord in a language you don't comprehend, all right? So it's a, it's a wonderful gift. But Paul's gonna make the point here and really throughout the rest of the chapter, it's an amazing gift for building you up in your relationship with the Lord. Watching the Holy Spirit work in your life to praise the Lord, maybe in a way that you don't even comprehend. That's a wonderful thing. But Paul's gonna make a point here that's a great thing for you and the Lord. It's not such a great thing if it turns into chaos in a church context, right? And in the context of the Corinthian church especially, but really in the church collective, our goal is edification of the body. We want to see the church built up. So it is wonderful. You know, you should, you should desire mountaintop experiences with the Lord. That's a wonderful thing to desire but you wanna see collectively the entire church grow and mature. And so there's a time and place at which your mountaintop experience may not actually help the church grow. And that's what Paul's gonna address. verse six, uh, and we're gonna read from six through 19, so kind of a big chunk. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language... I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding, that I may teach others also, than 10,000 words in a tongue. So... Understand something here. Tongues are a good gift. The Apostle Paul says, I speak with tongues more than all of y'all. All right? Paul's like, no, I understand tongues, and I love the gift of tongues, but there's a time and a place for the proper exercise. And he's making a point here. Look, he's, just, he's being really straightforward here. He says, if I stand up in a church service and I pray in tongues and you say amen... You know, and I and I, I I yell something in French, and then I go back to English, and I say, and all God's people said, and you all say Amen. You have no idea what you're saying Amen to. So, you know, it might have been a, a wonderful experience for me, but if you're just sitting there listening to somebody talk in a foreign language, it's like, well, that's you know, good for them that they're having a cool moment with the Lord, but um, you know, it's not really doing anything for me, except maybe making me feel guilty that. I don't have the gift of tongues, right? It's not helping the church. And he's making a point here, okay? If, you're gonna, if there's going to be an exercise of tongues in a church service, it's got to be for the edification of the church. So if there's not then the gift of interpretation of tongues, you need to not have the gift of tongues exercising in a church service. Paul's, Paul's just really clear. If the goal of exercising the gifts in a church service is to build up the church, then the goal needs to be, let's build up the church, right? He's, he's just saying, look, they're good, but in the context of edifying the church, there needs to be interpretation. And, and so, you know, again, just if some of this, you know, I don't know everybody's background fully, but if you come from a, a church background that believes that these gifts have, have died out or have diminished over time, the gift of tongues, basically, the Lord gives you the ability to praise him in a language you don't understand. The gift of interpretation it gives you the ability to, in, to translate a language that you don't understand, right? To hear someone speak in tongues and they say, I know exactly what they said. And I, and I have no idea how to speak that language in any other context, right? It's not like they said, bueno, and you're like, oh, 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 that was good. I bet it's, I bet it's uh, good God. Uh, you know, something, no, you, you have no idea. It's, it's a supernatural gift. And Paul's just saying, look, if you're going to do this in a church, Do it for edification, right? uh, Because otherwise it's just noise. He says, it's like when a trumpet, if a trumpet gets played and you can't play the notes. And this is in a military culture, you know, at this point in time, the trumpet is what you use to be heard in a battle. And if the trumpeter says, I don't know how to play a trumpet, I'll just wing it in battle, you have a problem, Right, because it's just noise. There's no clear direction coming from it. And so Paul says, "Look, the gift of tongues are great. I speak in tongues more than the rest of you. But if I'm in a church service, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than ten thousand words in a tongue." So Paul's being pretty clear here. Right, tongues are a wonderful gift, but when they're exercised properly, it's usually going to be in a much quieter context. Right, and and we'll get into it a little bit, but. Part of the problem with the Corinthian church as they were obsessing over tongues and they were elevating it to a point where not only was it just like not benefiting the church, it was actually dragging the church down. It was not it was becoming a like a competition of selfish people for who could demonstrate their spirituality the best. Alright? So verse twenty, we're gonna go twenty to twenty five. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes. But an understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God truly is among you. This passage is uh, it's a little confusing because it seems like Paul contradicts himself. And the short answer is nobody's 100% sure what he's trying to say. Because if you read it, in verse 22, basically says tongues are a sign from believers. And then later on, he basically says, if unbelievers come in and see you speaking in tongues, they're going to have no idea what you mean. And it's, it's not going to help them at all. And he's quoting, he makes a quote from Isaiah where the Lord says, basically, other people speaking in tongues are going to be a sign for you. And so we could spend a lot of time speculating, but more or less, I think here's sort of the, the basic idea. If an unbeliever comes in and sees someone speaking in tongues, they may be able to recognize there's something supernatural going on here, right? But there's not going to be a prophetic understanding. They're, they're, they might observe the sign, but a sign will not convict someone. A sign will not convert someone. What will convert someone is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking truth into that heart. And so tongues, if you're trying to figure out you know, how these verses line up, tongues can very well be a sign for an unbeliever. But prophecy, when someone is standing up teaching the word of God, and a person is sitting there thinking, he is hitting me right between the eyes, that's where the Holy Spirit can say, yes, this is truth. You need to respond to this. You need to grow in this. You need to walk in this. And so Paul's just making a point here. Tongues are, tongues are great, but they're really not going to help an unbeliever become a believer. They're going to be a little more of a healthy exercise for a Christian to grow in their relationship with the Lord and in praising the Lord. Prophecy is an incredible gift for unbelievers— and for believers, and for the church collective, for exhorting one another. So Paul's making a point. He says, like in in verse 1, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Right? So we should all be praying for all the gifts that the Lord wants for us. We should also all be praying, especially for the gift of prophecy. So he's going to go on in verse 26. Let's go 26 to 33. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So if you've got a background, a church background, that says the gifts uh, have died out or faded away, we already successfully offended you. If you have more of a charismatic or Pentecostal background, now it's your turn. Paul says, Listen, what's your problem? You come together and everybody's got some... We just got to share. I've got a word from the Lord. I've got a psalm. I've got a revelation. I've got an interpretation. We all got to do it at once. And he said, it's chaos. Let it be done for edification. Your church is not show and tell, right? He's saying church is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. It's for the edification of the body of Christ, for the glory of Christ, for the converting of the lost, for the discipline of the believer, right? Church has a specific role and function. And it is not for you to come and show off how spiritual you are. All right, so Paul says, if you're gonna speak in a tongue, if, let it be two or at the most three, which if you kind of break it down means you don't have to speak in a tongue in a church service. If you are, one is fine, two is stretching it, and three is your absolute cap, right? He's like, guys, we can, we can, we can turn it down. And if you're going to do it, take turns, right? Paul's really, he's giving some basic instruction because this church is so selfish. They're so carnally minded that Paul's saying, say, okay, guys, listen, check this out. Take turns, right? You're adults, take turns. And, oh, don't interrupt each other. Huh, what an idea. And it, if somebody stands up and says, hey, I have a, I have a gift of tongues, and I want to say something in, in the gift, with the gift of tongues to the church, and they stand up, and then the, the next appropriate thing to say is, okay, there needs to be a gift of interpretation. Does someone here have the gift of interpretation? And the person, if no one stands up and says, I have the gift of interpretation, then we're done speaking in tongues. All right? We're just, you know what? That's great. God bless you. That's not where the church service needs to go right now. Okay? Okay. Um, Couple, so just, And we're looking at this, and this, there's so much practical application in this paragraph for how we discern and work with the gifts of the Spirit, all right? Let two or three prophets speak. If you're going to have someone give a word of prophecy, two or three, right? So just incidentally, if you're going to have standing up, if, you know, if it's going to be for the whole church, the teaching should, should have an element of prophecy to it, right? The teacher should have the gift of prophecy, um, so one or two other people, if something needs to get shared to the church, we don't need to have 30 people all sharing for 10 minutes what the Lord is speaking to them. We can have a flow and a sense of order. And he says, let the others judge. This is important. You are commanded by scripture to be the judge of a word of prophecy. If someone says, I've got a word from the Lord for you, or somebody says, you know what, the word of God says this and it applies to your life, you've got a responsibility right there to not say, oh, it's a word from the Lord, but to say, is that a word from the Lord? Is that really a word from the Lord? And you need to be discerning that and walking in that, okay? And, it's an, and it is not a time for you to turn off your antenna. It's a time to say, okay, look, this might be a word from the Lord, and I hope it is, right? I hope you're walking and exercising your gift properly, and I hope I'm humble enough to receive it. But if it's not, we need, to, we need to know that. And I'm, I need to not walk in a guilt trip when I say, actually, you're wrong. And then you say, no, no, no. Which, don't you disobey the Lord. Don't disobey the voice of the Lord. No, actually, sir, you're not speaking with the voice of the Lord, okay? You gotta have, have the discernment. I remember, um, yeah. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. If somebody... Uh, if you know somebody says something and you've got something else that's the exact same thing, you know what? You don't have to interrupt and, and jump on. And you know, I'm just going to piggyback on what he said. Uh, sometimes you can say, you know, that was good. Praise the Lord, he, he gave it to you first, right? You beat me to the punch. That's awesome. Verse 32, he says, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This verse is so important. Because especially uh, in a more charismatic or Pentecostal background, there's a phrase sometimes that's "I couldn't help myself," or "You can't control the Spirit of God." And yet the answer is, um, actually, yeah, yeah, you can, right? I couldn't help myself. I had to stand up in the middle of service. No, sir, you did not. You can sit back down. Thank you very much, right? And understand what we're doing here is we're not we're not squashing the working of the of the gifts of the Spirit. But we're saying there's a time and a place, and if God is choosing to glorify himself in a church service, and and specifically, okay, if the word of God is being taught, God does not need to interrupt himself, right? If we're in the middle of a service and we're going through the word and somebody says, I need to stand up and give a word from the Lord, the answer is there's already being a word from the Lord, right? The, The word of God is speaking right now. And so we don't need to interrupt what God is saying so that you can tell us what God is saying. We're, we're already in process. And if you say, well, I can't help myself, well, actually, the Spirit is subject to the prophet. So if you're the prophet and you've got a, a word of prophecy, um, that word of prophecy is subject to your self-control. And a fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So one of the marks, one of the marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be the gifts of the Spirit working in your life. One of the fruits of dwelling in the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be the self-control to exercise the gifts in a proper context at a proper time for the edification of the church. Okay, so what we're doing, what we are not doing is saying, oh no, gifts don't have a place in the believer's life. I know there's several people in this church who speak with the gift of tongues. But you're going to have to get kind of close to them and do life with them and, and sort of figure it out because when it's exercised, uh properly it tends to be a really quiet humble gift they don't feel the need to stand up and and yell in tongues they just enjoy praying to the lord and knowing that they're having a time of fellowship with god right and that doesn't make them super spiritual but if they're going to exercise that gift properly it's oftentimes very they're very quiet about it right there are people in this church who have the gift of prophecy and they don't feel the need to stand up at the beginning of every service and say all right church lord came to me last night and I've got a word. Um, and I don't know why anytime somebody impersonates a charismatic person, it's Southern. I, it just happens. Um, but God is not, verse 33, the author of confusion, but of peace. And so Paul, and remember, we, we always want to tread a balance here. And this is, this is really important. We never want to say, oh, the gifts have no relevance. That is so dangerous. And if you slide down that side, you will find yourself in a dry depressing Christianity where you've got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and it is so frustrating, all right? You also never want to say the gifts are everything and the gifts, you know, that speaking in tongues is the, is the mark of salvation in a person's life. No, it's not. No, it's not. Paul says there's gonna be different gifts and different callings and different ministries. Speaking in the gift of tongues is wonderful. But if you make the gifts everything, you're going to lose the ability to say, What is the Word of God saying? You're going to lose the ability to judge when a prophet speaks. Right? If the gifts were everything, well, you know, he had the gift of prophecy, so I just had to go with what he said. No, no, no. You didn't. You had a responsibility to go back to the Word and say, What did the Word of God say in relation to that? So that's where we're going, okay? So gifts of the Holy Spirit are incredibly important. And some of the gifts are incredibly powerful. But the goal of them is to edify the church. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. So the gifts are supposed to be exercised. They're supposed to be used. They're supposed to be used properly, right? So he goes on. Paul's just on a roll here. Verse 34, "'Let your women keep silent in the churches.'" Amen. "'For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak at church.'" Well, that's awkward. Or did the word of God come originally from you or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Okay, what Paul is not saying here is that there's never an appropriate context for a woman to speak in a church. And we can say that pretty conclusively because the book of Joel says, when the spirit is poured out, your young men and your young women will have visions Uh, the disciple philip in the book of acts had four daughters who were all prophetesses paul's gonna write about women speaking in church women teaching other women and and being marked by good works in the church so he's not saying there's absolutely no context uh, in which a woman can speak in church remember that he's writing to a church that is really struggling with self-promotion and a lot of selfishness and a lot of just chaos is happening in this church all right so this is probably a little bit specific to the Corinthian church. Probably also, we don't know for sure, but there's good evidence to suggest that in the early church, they may have sat uh, genders on each side of the room. So you'd have had all the men on one side and all the women on the other side. And so in our church, you know, if somebody if I say something really stupid, it's easy to lean over and say, was that stupid? And for him to lean over and say, yeah, but in a church context, it's a little bit trickier if the wife is here and the husband's here and she says, hey, what verse is he on? Do you agree with that? I don't think he's right about this whole thing. And the husband's saying, oh, I'll explain it when we get home. And she says, no, 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 before, before he moves on, quick, quick, quick. And, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, what verse is he on? Like, it would just be a little bit distracting, right? So just logistically, he's saying, look, ladies, if you got a question, Ask your husband quietly, right? Don't shout it. That's kind of, you know, okay. Um, Verse 39, therefore, brethren, this is a great summary to three chapters on the gifts of the Spirit. Desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Embrace the gifts, embrace all of the gifts and do them in a decent fashion. Here's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, Paul is going to move on. He's, remember, he's basically he's addressing issues and questions that the church had. So he, they had questions about the gifts of the Spirit, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 15, he's going to switch gears entirely. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain verse 3 for i delivered to you first of all that which i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by cephas that's peter and then by the 12 after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep after that he was seen by james then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul switching gears here to talk about the resurrection. And culturally, you need to understand that basically The Greek culture, which is where the Corinthian church was located, the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. Paul said the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. The idea that a God could die is ridiculous. The idea that a God could resurrect is even more ridiculous. The Greeks do not believe in resurrection. And so you've got a church full of carnal people, people who are struggling to be discipled. They are running on a lot of emotion and not a lot of discipline, and so they are open to all kinds of false teachings. They're a vulnerable church, and they have people coming into the church who are claiming to be Christian who don't believe in resurrection. And so Paul is going to address here to the church the importance of resurrection, all right? And, and, and we'll just go through it, but it's such a great passage to be in uh, the week before Easter. But verse three, he says, I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received." that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is doing a couple things. He is taking them back to the word according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Go back and read it for yourselves, he's saying, right? And he's taking them back to the basics, right? Listen, speaking in tongues is a great gift. If you're not sure if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, speaking in tongues is worthless, Right? And Paul here, he's going back, if if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, well, verse 1, "...I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." The Corinthian church got off to a powerful start because Paul had one focus and that was I'm gonna tell these people about Jesus Christ and the fact that he died for their sins. And Paul's saying, guys, look, the whole point is the fact that he died and rose again. He died to conquer sin. He rose again to let us experience that he conquered sin, right? So he's he's just gonna be focusing on the resurrection. Verse 12, now, if Christ preached... If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Here's where he's going to go. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul says, guys, the whole point of what I've been teaching you is that Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't, then that makes me a liar. That means everybody you know who has died believing in Christ is still stuck in their sins. It means you are not forgiven, and it means, frankly, that you have no hope in life. So if you're going to believe that Christ is not risen, you need to understand what that does is that makes you something, a non-believer. If you don't believe, you're a non-believer. If you're going to claim to be a Christian, you need to understand that this is hinging. Everything about this is hinging on the idea that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Right. If it didn't happen, then you are in a pitiful state of life. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Paul is not hoping Christ is risen from the dead. Paul is anchoring to this truth. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For, quote, he has put all things under his feet, end quote. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Paul goes back to this metaphor. He uses it elsewhere, the idea of Jesus as the last Adam. And he's making a point, basically, Adam and Jesus are the, are the only two who experienced life without sin. You get kind of complex about Eve, but she was divided from Adam, so whatever. Um, Adam and Jesus. All right. So what do we have? Adam brought sin into the world. Basically, sin, and then, and then what? And then he died. Sin killed Adam. Jesus killed sin, right? That's the point Paul's making. If you're gonna believe that there is hope to get out of the sin cycle that we are in, somebody had to come along and kill sin. And then think of it, I mean, we're living in the story. We're living in, in the greatest world adventure quest that's ever been written. But there's this idea, something bad happened and we need a hero to kill the enemy. Right? And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying Christ is the one who did it. He's the one who killed sin. And if you can't believe that he did it, he, the only way he could demonstrate that he did it fully, because sin has killed everybody from Adam onward. Sin has won every time. Right? But he says the only way we can know that he actually killed sin is if he beat it at its own game. Sin killed Christ. The sins of men, the jealousies of men, the, sin, you know, the wickedness of the world is what put Christ to death. It's our sins that he bore on the cross. Sin killed Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ conquered sin, how do we know? If he stays dead, he could tell us that he conquered sin, but are we gonna know? Paul says the only way we know is that he rose from, is that he rose again. And when he rose, we understand sin killed Adam, Christ killed sin. Sin is on its way down, right? Right. At this point, you know, it's kind of that point in the movie when it's like the good guy won, but there's still a little bit of cleanup work to do. We know who won, right? Christ killed sin. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I have no idea. What he means by being baptized for the dead but the consolation is nobody else does either okay so again might have been some sort of specific cultural thing there's nowhere else in scripture that teaches it he's not even saying it like we should do it he's just saying hey you guys are baptizing people for the dead why would you do that if you don't believe in a resurrection what's the point of baptizing a dead person and we're kind of all sitting here like what's the point anyways we don't know okay it's just a weird verse but the point is he says if the dead don't rise then let's eat and drink because we're going to die. If this, if this life is all we got, what is the point of sitting in a church building on a Wednesday night when you could be smashing up and shacking up and whatever else you could do to try and buy yourself a little bit of happiness, right? I mean, let's be frank. This is not exactly the most exhilarating thing you could do with your life on a Wednesday night. If the word of God is not real and if Jesus Christ isn't coming back, like we're doing this because we believe that there's a long-term benefit, right? This in and of itself, there are, you know, there's more exciting things in life, right? Um, So Paul's just making the point, look, why would we do anything? Why would we ever have this idea of self-restraint or walking in holiness or any kind of thing like that if we don't believe in the resurrection? Why would we hope? Why would we have faith in it? If the resurrection didn't happen... Your life is worthless, right? If you do not believe that the resurrection happened, then you have no means of putting value into your life. And so, you know, so as, we, as he says this, we understand a couple things. One, the resurrection gives us value too. We need to understand and have compassion for people who are just parting their life away because they're living out a natural expression of the idea there's no hope long-term. So they don't deserve our judgment they deserve our pity and they deserve the hope that we have to offer them right and he says awake to righteousness and do not sin because christ is risen right verse 20 christ is risen from the dead so what do we do with it awake to righteousness the fact that christ is risen isn't our excuse to eat and drink so that grace may abound it's our opportunity to wake to righteousness verse 35 but some will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So he's addressing kind of a sarcastic question, like, well, how did the dead get raised? You see Fool, listen. If nothing's made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, verse 37, you don't sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. He says, look, you guys understand this. You put a corn seed in the ground, a corn seed does not come up. A corn plant comes up. You put an acorn in the ground, an acorn does not come out of the ground. An oak tree comes out of the ground. You understand the idea of something going into the ground and being resurrected again in a different form. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another there is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in glory verse 42 so also is the resurrection of the dead the body is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Paul says, look, if you're asking about the resurrection because you're like, well, I need to know exactly how it works or else I'm not interested, you know, I don't want to I'll go to hell, but at least I'll be with my friends, or I don't want to play a harp on a cloud for the rest of forever, right? Paul's like, you guys are idiots. And he says that. I mean, calling somebody a fool is is really the same thing, right? You guys are idiots. Is that what you think resurrection is? You put an acorn in the ground, and you get an oak tree. He says, you're sown in corruption, right? You were born a sinner. Everything about your life is decaying, right? Right now, we're all sitting in this room and dying, Somebody said the definition of health is dying as slowly as possible, right? We're, just, we're, we're all going downhill, guys, and I hate to break it to you, but it just it's going to happen, right? Like, things wear out. Things break down, right? We're not always going to be at our prime, right? That's why we call it a prime, because there's a peak, and then it's just, you know, it's the slide, and some of us are going to slide a lot faster than others, but we're all going to slide. He's saying, look, you're sown in corruption. You're sown in dishonor, right? Because you're a sinner, you're ashamed of certain body parts. That's one of the consequences of sin. And so we have to cover things up, right? Paul says, you're gonna be raised in glory. You're gonna, you're gonna transcend these things, right? We talked about last week, someday faith will be complete. We won't have faith anymore because it'll be finished. Someday hope will be complete. It'll be finished. How much more things like bodies. Now, I have no idea. I mean, you know, the revelation kind of gives an implication. There's some sort of physical context to heaven, but it's like an acorn trying to explain to another acorn what an oak tree does. It just, you know, there's just, there's nothing in you that can compute, right? C.S. Lewis, I think it's one of the best word pictures. He called it the shadow lands. He said, right here, right now, everything that we consider real is the shadow. And you think about that. I just, I think that's such a great picture. Imagine if all you knew about your kids, all you knew about your wife, all you knew about any person you knew, know was their shadow, right? And somebody asks you, to describe your wife. And, and, and all you've got to go off of is the shadow. And then imagine what it's gonna be like when you actually, it's a weird metaphor, but I'm not married, so I don't know how bad of a metaphor it is. Imagine when you go from meeting the shadow to meeting the real person. And, and all your life, you thought the shadow was, was just like, man, that shadow is hot. That shadow is everything I want, right? And all of a sudden, you meet the real person and you realize there's like compassion and empathy and an intelligent mind behind it, right? There's all these things and it's like, oh my gosh, I just, I was, I was in love with the shadow. How much more the real thing? That's what your life is right now. It's a shadow. So when we obsess or people get stressed out over like, are there puppies and ice cream in heaven? I'm like, that's such a stupid question. And I say that in love, but it's a stupid question because we're gonna be raised in honor and incorruption. Right? We're gonna go from the shadow to real dimension. Right now we have three dimension. I don't know what real dimension is. So I know there's it's something. It's gonna be cool. It's gonna be pretty epic. I have no idea what it is. However, verse forty six the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. He says, guys, look, the natural Adam came first. The spiritual Adam came second. Your natural body comes first. Your spiritual body comes second. So there's a resurrection coming. Heck yeah. Great. Great. Christ is raised from the dead, right? That's his point. Christ is raised from the dead. You have the promise of resurrection. So don't go around this whole, well, you know, let's eat and drink because we're going to die. No, make it count. There's value in your life because you believe in resurrection, right? You believe you are looking forward to that moment when you go in the ground as an acorn and come out as an oak tree. When you go in the ground as a corrupted body and you're going to come out into the glory of heaven as an incorruptible body. That's what you're looking for. That's what we're striving for. verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on Incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If it's in the Lord, like chapter 13, if it's the love of God, it will last, it will stand. So be steadfast, be immovable. Resurrection's coming, and it's going to be glorious. Right? And so, yeah, we hurt in this life. We've got corrupted bodies, we've got dishonorable bodies. That's the word he uses. Things hurt, things break, things fall apart, right? We get spare parts. It just, it happens, right? And we look towards the resurrection. And so we are steadfast. We are pressing on. Incidentally, just for the sake of... um addressing it just because we're there he says we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet some people take that uh, when they look at the book of revelation they say okay look we're going to get raptured at the last trumpet it's not really uh, a good way to interpret this first for a couple reasons one this is written before the book of revelation was written so Paul isn't referencing the book of revelation two the last trumpet is a military term that would have been in place it's basically the signal let's move all right and so he's saying, look, when the call says, when the call comes to go, we're going, all right? Verse 16, and if you're worried, it's going to be fairly quick, don't worry. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. This is fundraising at its finest. He says, "Look, you already told me you are going to bring give me, you already told me you are going to donate money for the church in Jerusalem. I don't have to do an in-person fundraiser. So just get it ready before I come. Pick a guy who's really responsible to steward the money well and he can take the money. Make sure he's got a good reputation. And if you want me to go along too, I'm happy to go along." Fundraising 101. Paul doesn't appear to believe in thermometers because he says, "Get it done before I get there." Now, verse five, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So he's giving him his travel plans, right? I'm on my way, I'm passing through Macedonia. I don't want to just kind of hit you with a quick trip on my way. I'd like to really stay for a winter and be a blessing to you guys. And verse eight, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Incidentally, notice this. We love talking about open doors in the church, right? Paul's definition of an open door is based on how many people can shoot at him through it. We usually think of an open door as, like, how paved and smooth is this road, right? Paul looks at it, he's like, man, they brought in a tank. That means the devil's scared. Let's go right? That's sometimes what an open door looks like. So just be careful if you're going to talk about open doors in ministry and open doors in serving the Lord. An open door is not necessarily an easy door, right? He says there is a great and effective door and there are a lot of adversaries. He's just, I love that. I'm just like, bring it on, right? Verse 10, and if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. Don't scare the kid, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come with you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. So Timothy's wanting to come. Apollos can't come right now. He's just giving him logistics. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith. Be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. So, oh yeah, right? Right? We're wrapping up a book to a carnal church that's wrestling with all kinds of things. Sexual morality, abuse of the gifts, selfishness, self-promotion, suing each other. He says, hey guys, watch out. Stand fast. Don't sit fast, stand. Be brave, be strong. Go for it. Jesus, you know, I was reading today in the New Testament reading, the disciples come back from a mission trip and they say, the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Don't, don't rejoice in the fact that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in the book of life. Now, I'm super excited that the demons are subject to me, right? But grow in appreciating the gift of salvation. Be brave. Satan's already, sin is conquered, right? Go for it. Be strong. And oh, by the way, kicking back to chapter 13, let all that you do be done with love. If you have all the gifts of the Spirit and all the braveness and all the strength and all the service and whatever else, and you don't have the love of God, it's worthless. So let it all be done in love. Verse 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanas, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied for they refresh my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Hey, these guys are helping you out in your church. They're strong. They're godly men. Appreciate them. Acknowledge them. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul says, look, guys, you know, and I, I, I think it's such a great summary, right? This church has got so many problems. They're struggling in so many ways. And Paul says, hey, you know what? The grace of God. And by the way, I love you in Christ. And that's what a church needs. That's an that's a, that's a amazing summary, right? The love of Christ, the grace of Christ. If we grow in those things, everything else will follow, right? We grow in those, the gifts will come, right? We'll grow in holiness, we awake to righteousness, all those things. We're looking forward to the resurrection with the grace of God and the love of Christ and it's a good day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are so blessed that we have the faithfulness of Paul to, to love this church well. And to give them a little tough love, to, to rebuke them so that we can know how to, how to function in a healthy way. God, we do pray that our vision as a church would be to edify the body of Christ. That we would uh, really absorb these chapters. We thank you as we're in Easter week that we look forward to the resurrection. God, what, a, what an amazing gift. Open our eyes, please, to just absorb more and more. To recognize just the vastness and the wonder of that gift. We want to stand in it. So God, go before us, guide us, and lead us. I do pray, Lord, that you would fill us up with your spiritual gifts. We wanna be open to them. We wanna see them working in our lives with power. I pray that we would all speak in tongues, but I pray even more so that we would all prophesy and that you would receive the glory. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, that we pray, amen.